Take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Peace for the holidays. Peace for the holidays, yes. We'll wait till the new year to get started on another Wednesday night series. We have tonight and next week and then some special things going on the holidays. Uh, so we probably better wait until we get started in a fresh new series. But to, uh, this week and next week, uh, I want us to be looking at a passage out of Philippians chapter 4. What we begin tonight, hopefully we will end next week. Philippians 4, peace for the holidays. Paul says there, uh, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, Syntyche rather, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Counselors will tell you how the holidays are a season of the year when their caseloads often increase. As joyful as the holidays are, we all know that there's an extra layer of stress that is also added. There's presents to buy. There's decorations to put up. There are guests to prepare for, usually with meals surrounding that. And so during the holidays, we're often stressed out and every little thing seems to be magnified. Now, I want to talk to you tonight about some things to keep in mind as we go into the holidays. Now, again, actually, we're gonna, we'll pick up in verse 8 next week, and we'll, we'll finish this out. But I want us to see some attitudes and actions that bring peace to our lives. That's why I've called this Peace for the Holidays. And I think you'll see how all of this ties together. Even if you don't understand it first, you'll see the big picture of how all of these tie together. I want to give you five admonitions tonight. First of all, Paul admonishes them to stand firm in the Lord. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Folks, it's important to always give attention to our relationship with Christ. Now, this verse actually is a bridge verse. It ties, it ties together chapter 3 with what he's going to go on and say in chapter 4. Chapter 3 is what sets the stage. And so tying the two together, 
I want you to see that we are to stand firm, first of all, because of the shortage of good examples. Look back at chapter 3 and verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We need to stand firm. We need to be good examples because there are so few good examples uh, today. Uh, now notice who he's discussing here. He's discussing, discuss, I'll get untongue tangled tonight. He's discussing people of the world who allow fleshly desires and appetites to control their lives, to dictate their lives. They are the type of people who never seem to be content. You ever met anybody like that? I dare say you have. I want to ask you tonight, are you content? Are you content with what you have? I want you to listen to this testimony from a man named Joe uh, Gutierrez. In his book, The Heat, Steelworkers, Lives, and Legends, he tells stories from his past 42 years as a steelworker. One story he tells is entitled, Snow Danced in August. He describes a scene of silvery dust flakes that frequently floated to the floor in a certain area of the mill where everybody wanted to work. For years, everybody wanted to be in that area. It was a beautiful sight, a picturesque sight to see all these little particles floating in the air. And then one day they discovered that these silver particles were asbestos. And so Joe Gutierrez now suffers from the slow choking grip of uh, asbestosis as do his fellow workers. He comments about the irony of it all. He says, and to think we used to fight over that job. How many things in our culture today entice our families that would make you think of those silver flakes floating in the air? Beautiful at first, but deadly at the same time. Folks, we need to be content. We need to stand firm in the Lord, and we need to put our focus on our relationship with Him and on things that really matter. Amen? Be content in your relationship with Christ. There seem to be so few doing that. Now another reason to stand firm in the Lord is because we are citizens of heaven. He said there in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A born-again child of God is a citizen of two worlds. We're citizens of this world, 
but were also citizens of heaven. And they would have understood that at Philippi because Philippi had been made a Roman colony. And so while they were citizens of Macedonia, they were also citizens of Rome with all the rights and privileges thereof. And so they would have understood this concept of dual citizenship. Heaven is your real home if you belong to Jesus Christ. It's your eternal home. And so the challenge is you and I even now are to live by the standards of our citizenship which is in heaven. Still another reason to stand firm in the Lord is because we'll be transformed one day. In verse 21, he says, Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so the battles that you and I fight today against the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of these battles will be worth it one day. As we stand firm in the Lord and put our focus where it should be, these battles will be worth it one day in that day when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Standing firm in your faith is the first key to a life of peace. Okay, Because it's the Lord that's going to help you in the storms of life. And when the world around you seems to be going crazy, when circumstances around you seem to be going crazy, it is the Lord that's going to be the anchor to your life, and He's the one that's going to bring stability and peace and contentment to your life when nothing else will. The image here is of a soldier not giving an inch of ground to the enemy. We're soldiers of the cross. And as such, we are to stand firm in the Lord. A second key to peace. Strive for harmony in your relationships. Strive for harmony In your relationships, what does the Bible say elsewhere? As far as it depends on you, what? Be at peace with all men. Notice what Paul says here. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. For us today, the holidays seem to be a time of increased conflict among family members. Am I speaking to anybody in here? Again, just ask counselors, ask pastors, okay? A bunch of family coming in is a blessing, but at the same time, I'm constantly told by people what a challenge it is, right? In-laws are sometimes outlaws, right? Other family can be the same. I've been told by some, they simply, around the holiday dinner table, they simply have to rule some topics out of bounds and not even bring up conversations. Folks, there's no peace if people are bickering and backbiting and wrangling and grumbling. 
Paul is indicating to the church at Philippi here that they need to deal with petty divisions. And they need to deal with these two ladies in their con congregation that are having these petty divisions. He describes them. They've been co-laborers in the gospel. And Paul mentions Clement, who's done the same. He mentions others. But here's two women that have been very valuable to the life of the church there at Philippi. Uh, they've been warriors for the faith. Now, we know that women played a very important role in the spread of the gospel. There was Lydia. Remember, Lydia was the first convert in Europe when the gospel went west. When Paul landed down in Philippi, he went down by the river because in Philippi they didn't have enough Jewish citizens to have a synagogue. And so he went down by the river looking for people who were worshiping God and he found a group of women there and Lydia was in that group of women she was a businesswoman from Thyatira and Paul begins preaching the gospel and I love what Acts 16 says about her it says the Lord opened her heart and she believed then you have Phoebe who served well in the church at Rome then you have Priscilla who along with her husband Aquila took Apollos under their wing and discipled him uh, in the faith. So again, you have these two women who are mentioned here. They're not on the mere edges of the ministry there at Philippi. They're, they're pivotal there in the church. They're co-laborers. They have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And yet, for some reason or another, we're not told why, but these two women are not getting along. And their division is threatening the very work of the gospel that they had fought so hard to establish there in their city. And so Paul calls them out by name. Wow. Could you imagine that? Having your name called out for the church through all the ages to read about that you were in conflict? Maybe we ought to try that today. Here, let me, let me tell you about a few people here. Okay, you ready? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I don't know that we have any like that. But anyway, Paul does call him out by name. Uh, and he, he admonishes them that they need to get along in the Lord. You know, what they were disagreeing about was probably something petty. You know. Uh, and I'm sure they told their friends in church who told their friends and they went home and told family and friends and on and on it spread. Now, it, it probably just amounted to one of them was supposed to bring a pound cake to the church fellowship and the other was supposed to bring green beans and they both ended up bringing the same thing, right? Something like that. That's how church fusses usually go. Rarely is it over some important doctrinal issue. A lot of times, 
couple people in the church like this not getting along. It's just over something petty. I remember a friend of mine up in Virginia when I pastored up there in his church. They got in a major church squabble because they'd renovated this sanctuary and they had moved some of the ceiling fans that had been in the sanctuary. And some of the people who enjoyed those fans, they were moved in such a way, some people who didn't like them, it's blowing on them now, and some people who liked them, it wasn't blowing on them. But, you know, it, it was, they, they would have to move from their cherished seat if they were going to enjoy the ceiling fans. And, and so uh, Dr. Harold told me they actually, one day, one, one night in business conference, the church got in a fuss over that. I remember in a church one time, we had Friday night fellowships, and everybody from the community would come to our fellowship hall. It was potluck dinner, and the ladies were washing dishes there. And one of them in a business meeting stood up and said, I propose that we start buying paper plates because we're missing the fellowship. And one gentleman stood up, I'll have you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, 60 years ago bought all that real china for the, these fellowships and we have to honor their gift and all. So the women said, okay, then you men are going to be in the kitchen washing the dishes. <laughs> the, we bought the paper plates. <laughs> but it's stuff like that that goes on so oftentimes, petty stuff. Think about families, family gatherings, petty stuff. Think about some of your family gatherings you're going to have this Christmas season. Are there some family relationships that you need to patch up before then? Are the holidays going to be stressed out? at your home when the family gets together because of something going on in some of the members. I, I would admonish you right now to try to be doing something about that so that the family gathering this year can be a little bit better. Okay? Is there some peace you need to make with somebody? Is there something you need to do to take some of the stress out of the holidays this year? Do it. Don't wait. Do it. Third thing I want you to see here. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, we've got theological reasons to rejoice. If you were to go back to the beginning of this letter, Paul calls, calls them saints. Now, Christians don't always act like saints, but that's who we are. If you have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you are a saint in the sense that you have been set apart. You are a holy one. You've been set apart. Now, we don't always act like who we are. 
but we're saints. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 10 after he sent them out on their first mission and they came back rejoicing? Lord, we saw this happen and we saw this happen and we saw that happen. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Does anybody remember? He said, listen guys, I, I know that you've seen even the demons be subject to you. But what you really need to be rejoicing over is the fact that your names are written in heaven's book of life. Rejoice. Take time in your life. Amidst all the busyness of the holiday season, amidst all of the stress factors that enter into your home and into your life at this time of year. Take some time every day to sit before the Lord and spend some time rejoicing in the Lord. Don't neglect that. You know, also he told them back in chapter 1 that he knew that God wasn't done with them yet. He who hath begun a good work in you will continue it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Not only are we saints whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but we have God's ongoing, continuing work in us. What I'm saying is, we've got reason to rejoice. The world looks for circumstances as the foundation of rejoicing. But you and I as believers have theological reasons to rejoice. Theological reasons that have nothing to do with our circumstances. And so again, I want to challenge you to develop the habit of rejoicing in the Lord don't always focus on the bad in your life or the things in your life that you would want to change focus in on what God has done in your life rejoice in the Lord and I want you to notice what he says about this rejoicing he says always Always. Again, it's not based on circumstances. Again, you go back to Paul's example to the Philippians. You go back to chapter 1 and he's writing to them about his circumstances, how he's imprisoned under house arrest. And yet he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, Nonetheless, I rejoice in the Lord. And so he tells them to rejoice always. A fourth admonition he gives them here. He wants them to have the right perspective. He says in verse 5, Let your gentleness or your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Now, William Barclay and some other Greek scholars say that this is one of the hardest words in the New Testament to translate into English from the Greek because of the richness of this word. There's, there's no one single English word that can capture all of the meanings of the Greek word here. James Montgomery Boyce says that the sentence is a warning not to be unduly rigorous about unimportant matters. The word can mean gentleness, it can mean meekness, it can mean graciousness, it can mean reasonableness, it can mean moderate in the sense of being temperate. It also means... Uh, not being short-tempered, not being demanding, not being overbearing, not being selfish, not being impatient. This one Greek word means all of those things in English. Folks, we're not to have a short fuse with people. We are to be bending where we can bend without compromising the faith. We're to be second milers. Remember what Jesus said about that? Somebody asks you to go with them one mile and carry their, carry their load. What do you do? Go with them two miles. Be a two-mile type person. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says one of the characteristics of the last days will be that people will be irreconcilable and they will be hateful and haughty. But folks, as Christians, we're to be known as being a reasonable people. That somebody could sit down with us, even if they had a disagreement with you about something they could sit down with you and, and have a gentle conversation and that's what Paul is saying at Philippi they need to put into practice and he tells them why he says the Lord is at hand now that could be looked at in two ways. First of all, the Lord is with us. In other words, we're never alone. We don't have to act as though we're all alone in this world. And anything we get, we have to fight each other for. The Lord is with us. He's at hand. He walks with us and will take care of us. But the second way of looking at it may be better. It's to say the Lord is coming. His coming is close at hand. How are you going to feel about demanding some of the things you're demanding and being difficult about some of the things you're being difficult over if you knew the next thing that's going to happen in your life is the Lord Jesus was going to come and you were going to be accountable for your attitude? Would that change anything? And so he's saying, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. Do people know that that's the type of person that you are? A reasonable, gentle, patient, temperate person. And then fifthly, he admonishes them to pray instead of worry. 
Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Somebody once wisely said that worry reigns over more people than any king has ever done. Worry reigns over more people than any king has ever done. And sadly, that's true, isn't it? We all know how to worry. Do you ever stop to consider that worry is something we don't have to be taught to do? We have to learn to trust, but we don't have to learn to worry. Now I want you to think about the uselessness of worry. It doesn't accomplish a thing, does it? Psychologists have noted before that people tend to worry about things that don't even come to pass. How much have you worried about in your life? That didn't even come to pass. Pastor Brian Harbour writes. Worry is a sin because it is based on the assumption. That God is not able to take care of our lives. He says worry is a theological problem. And the solution is to expand our concept of God. To recognize that he's able to do more than we could ever ask or even think. And that's Paul's point here. Be anxious for nothing. Now, worry or anxiety comes from a word that means to be pulled in different directions. And that's what worry does. It pulls us apart. The old English word for worry meant to choke or to strangle. And that's a good description of what worry does. It, it strangles the life out of us. Folks, anxiety fails to take into account to whom we belong. We have a heavenly father. Anxiety fails to take into account the promises of God. He's promised to take care of the lives that he's created. And that was what Jesus' point was in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25 and following. Don't be anxious about things that the Gentiles are anxious about. Food and clothing, you know, the roof over your head and all this kind of stuff. He said, don't you realize that you're of more value than the birds and the lilies? God looks after those things. You're of more value than, than they are. If God created your life, don't you think God's going to provide the necessities for your life? If he did the greater, he's going to do the lesser. The greater is the life he's given you. If he created your life, which is the greater, he's going to take care of the lesser, which is the necessities of your life. We're valuable to God, so we don't have to worry. I want you to think for a moment about where our value comes from. Society says our value comes from things like 
our looks or our position in life or our bank account. It comes from any of those things. They're all performance driven. But what does the scripture say? Where does value come from? From the fact that you're created in God's image. The imago dei, the image of God. Folks, that's the starting point of where we realize our value to God and the value of others. You're created in the very image of God. And not only are you created in the image of God, but you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God sent His Son, died on the cross, that you might be forgiven and with Him in heaven forevermore. Doesn't that say something about your value and your worth? You say, what's all that have to do with worry? It has everything to do with worry. If I thought for one moment that there was no God, and even if there was, that He didn't care one iota about me, then guess what? I would worry about stuff, right? But knowing he's there, I'm created in his image. He's preparing a place for me. He loves me and whatever he allows in my life has first of all been sifted through his hands. Folks, that's freeing, isn't it? That's liberating. That means I don't have to fret over everything that the man in the world frets over. And so, to help with that, Paul says we're to pray. We are to cease from worrying by engaging in prayer. That reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 18.1. He told a parable that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And he told that parable about that little persistent widow. Some people do everything but pray when they're worried. They eat. Some people drink. Some do drugs. Some pull away from everybody, withdraw from life. What's the Christian response to be? The Christian response is to be that we pray. The very things that worry us are to be the things that we turn over to God in prayer. Now, he uses three words for prayer here. He says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And so the first word he uses, prayer, it's a very generic word. And it, it refers to the fact that our prayers are to be filled with adoration and praise to God. That's the focus of that word. Because If you think about it, that's appropriate because when, when we're worried, who are we focused on? We're focused on ourselves. But he's using a word here that tells us our, in our prayers our focus is to be on God. And then he uses the wor a word supplication. It means we're to tell God about the things that are heavy on our hearts. We are to share our needs with him. What's troubling you today? Or what's heavy on your heart today? 
That's what your heavenly father wants you to talk to him about. And it's supplication with what? Thanksgiving. We're to be grateful to God for everything. As I've said to you before, some of the things that you might hate most in your life are the very things that God is using to conform you more to the image of Christ. That might be the thing that five or ten years from now you look back on and you see how God used that more than anything else in your life. So when you're worried, take some time to get alone with God and worship Him and tell Him what's worrying you. And then before you get up off of your knees, give Him thanks. Also think about something else. As I mentioned earlier, anxiety accomplishes nothing. Nothing except unhealthy things. It might cause you more problems. Now, look at the promise that he gives. He gives a promise in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's he say there about the peace of God? How's he describe it? You can't describe it. It surpasses all understanding, right? Paul's not talking about the kind of peace that occurs when everything's going well. That kind of peace is understandable. He's talking about a peace that's not understandable. It surpasses understanding. Human language can't reach a high enough plateau to describe this kind of peace. His peace, he says, will guard your hearts and minds. Look at that word guard. That word was used of a military battalion that would surround a city and guard a city. And he says that's what God's peace will do in the believer's life. And so if we obey verse 6, the Bible says that God will put up a guard of peace around our lives. God will set up his watch over your life. And and he will minister to you with his watchful eye and his graceful touch on your life. There's a hymn that says, Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we will not carry everything to God in prayer. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your burdens on the Lord, all your anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. Folks, you may not believe that always, but you can Because God's word promises it. 
Now, there's another observation to make here. Paul didn't say that you would necessarily have the petitions that you asked of him. Thankfully, God doesn't always give us what we ask for. But he says God will give us his peace. I I think an example of this would be Jesus in the garden. God didn't take the cup from him, but God gave him the peace and the strength to face the cross. Paul, the thorn in the flesh, God didn't take that from him, but God gave him the grace sufficient to bear it, bear up under it. So God may not give you what you asked for in your petition, but he'll give you something better. I want to ask you, is there something you need to bring to God today? Is there a request? Is there a supplication? Again, Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't despair. Pray. What do you need to pray about this holiday season? What has you troubled? Do you have any worries? What are you fretting about in the busyness of the season? Make your petitions known to God. Maybe to help with peace this holiday season... You need to ask God to make you a little more reasonable and gentle. Could you be the one that needs that? You might be thinking about a family member, but could it also be you? Maybe your need is to start rejoicing. Stop focusing on troubles, circumstances that you would like to change. And start praising God for what He has given you in your life and what He has done in your life. Maybe there's some petty differences like these two ladies. Again, we don't know what it was. But maybe there's some differences you need to settle. Again, do it before everybody's gathered around the table. Perhaps you need to start standing more firm in the Lord. You're giving up too much ground to the enemy. Stand firm in Christ. He said he came to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. And next week, as part of this, we're going to focus in on what Paul says we're to do with our thinking from verse 8. In addition to dealing with our relationships and being moderate and reasonable with others, and praying over everything and not worrying, 
we're going to see that we also need to be thinking about the right kind of stuff. Because a lot of times in our thought life, we're focused in on the wrong stuff.